This episode of Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Advani, here with my co-host, finance expert and author, and my one and only, Ruben Advani. Hey, Ruben. Hi, Emily. So a lot to talk about. The stock market crashed more than 1,000 points in only a few days. What is going on there? Let's just jump right in. Yeah, there. let's dismiss with the pleasantries and let's, let's get to... Uh what's going on right now in the world of finance. It's, uh, I don't want to call it a scary time, but uh, there are quite a few question marks right now. And let's begin with what happened recently. So in essence, there's been uh, quite a bit of discussion about the Fed raising interest rates, and we've talked about that on earlier shows. And it took the market participants some time to digest it, but the latest turn occurred when yields on bonds spiked. So we won't go into great detail on the specifics of bond pricing and yield on today's show, but in essence, it means that directionally interest rates are on the up and bonds are reflecting that. And that's very important because investors and analysts monitor something closely called the yield curve. And it gives them a sense as to what the market believes interest rates will be doing in the future. Now, clearly the Fed signaled some weeks ago that they would be raising rates over the next year. And now the bond market is reflecting that. Now, the big question, of course, is what does this all mean for Main Street? And of course, what does it all mean for Wall Street? Well, Wall Street took this as an indication of perhaps the end of cheap money. Now we've talked about this as well. When interest rates have been low over the last few years, it's been relatively easy to borrow money and pay it back at a very low rate of interest. In essence, financing is cheap. And that has fueled much of the great economic boom that we've seen over the last several years. In fact, since the uh, end of the financial crisis. So here we are today, and folks are starting to wonder if that era of cheap money is actually coming to an end. So Wall Street took this to heart, and panic set in. And with that panic, they sold their stocks. So that gives us a pretty good picture of why Wall Street cares when the Fed raises rates. And on Main Street, we often hear, oh, the Fed raises rates, now my mortgage rate interest rate is going to go up. What does the Fed raising rates mean to consumers here on Main Street? Well, simply put, it means less discretionary income, because if rates go up, most consumers who carry some form of debt have less money in their pocket at the end of the day. Think about what that means for your credit card bill. If you carry a credit card balance, which, by the way, I would encourage you not to carry one, and we can maybe talk about that on a later show, uh, it means that you're paying more each month to service that debt that's outstanding. Similarly, if you take out a mortgage to buy a home, your mortgage payments would be higher than if interest rates were lower. And if you finance your car purchase, same thing. You're paying more each month than when interest rates were lower. So in the end, what this all means is that consumers have less money in their pocket. It's basically, it costs more to borrow the same money. Exactly. 
and this is not just in mortgages, which we're most, all of us are most familiar with, um, but credit cards, cars, all of it. That's exactly right. And you can imagine how this reverberates throughout the economy. For each of us, if we are paying more to finance our purchases, especially has, a big purchase like a home, a big purchase like a home, we're now spending less on discretionary items. So this has a direct impact on Main Street and then a spillover effect onto Wall Street because now corporations are selling less. And if they're selling less, they're earning less. And if they're earning less, they are worth less. So it's a little bit of a vicious cycle here. That is precisely the case. And this is what we've seen in the financial markets over the last several trading sessions. This vicious cycle is really starting to take hold. Now, when this was all happening, I got a text from you that says, oh, this feels a lot like 2008. Is this like 2008? How is it the same? How is it different? You started to make me panic a little bit. Why were you panicking? So, okay, so I'm smiling right now because I've now... It also rallied. It the did, market it did a since bit. a little bit, a little bit. Um, I'm now smiling because I think I maybe got a bit carried away, but the Dow did fall 800 points. And in fairness, that is a less than common occurrence. 800 points is uh, quite a move. And it's enough to create a sense of panic, even amongst the most skilled investors. It felt like 2008 because I remember how panic gripped the market and rationality was discarded. At that time, people stopped thinking about fundamentals. They stopped thinking about the, the strength that underlies many great corporations. And the only thing they could fixate on was the fact that everyone else is selling, which means I need to sell. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Get rid of everything. And it had elements of that the other day when the Dow fell 800 points. Not to say this is 2008, but that particular instance sure felt like it. Well, the market is not the only thing that sort of came tumbling down recently. Sears, an iconic American brand, has filed for bankruptcy. Ruben, can you walk us through this? I can. And it plays out like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's, it's a tale of power, greed, manipulation, the list goes on and on. A sad tale and a sad demise of one of America's most iconic brands. Uh, we can go back uh, more than a decade to a point where a hedge fund manager decided to merge Sears with Kmart. Now his fund had turned around Kmart to some degree, and this was back in the mid-2000s. And his view was that by merging Sears with Kmart, he would capture a number of different synergies, in essence, create efficiencies that would turn to enhanced corporate profits. So Wall Street embraced this thesis, and the new company, Sears Holdings, saw its stock price soar. And the individual who ran the hedge fund was hailed as the next Warren Buffett. Now, much of the strategy revolved around the real estate that uh, was part of this massive portfolio of retail outfits. And in the mid-2000s, the commercial real estate market was booming. Now, of course, we know what happened a few years later. With the onset of the financial crisis, the real estate market collapsed. 
So therein began a series of problems that would culminate in one of the greatest destructions of corporate value in history. It began with the decline in real estate values. And soon, the advent of online retailing further impacted the core business. So here we are today, the company filed for bankruptcy. It seems like the CEO was looking at the company more as an investor, a hedge fund manager, than as a retail specialist. Was that part of the problem? Many argue it was. In fact, he named himself CEO only only a couple of years ago, and skeptics argued that he wasn't qualified to run a retail company. He thought, I'm a smart guy, I've created value for my investors, how hard can it be? Well, it proved to be probably one of the most challenging aspects of his entire career. Running a retail giant is unlike anything else. From people I've talked to, people I've interviewed in the retail industry, it is not like any other industry. It is an industry based on on channel partners, customer relationships, marketing expertise, and all kinds of idiosyncrasies that characterize this this industry that's been around for hundreds of years. That very few people can can understand unless they have years and years of experience. And this is coupled with a very turbulent time, both in the economy and in the retail market. Well, we're seeing a seismic shift. We've alluded to this before, thanks to online retailing like Amazon and other online upstarts. It's very difficult for brick and mortar retailers to compete. Some have done it rather well. Walmart and Target have done an effective job branding themselves in their stores. But Sears didn't invest in any kind of brand identity. They didn't do much to cultivate a new brand identity in a changing retail climate. Sears files for bankruptcy. Does this mean we will not see a single Sears store? Not necessarily. Bankruptcy means there will be a massive restructuring. And... It remains to be seen of the investors and of the debt holders who comes away with something. Clearly, there will be some element of asset sales. Some of the Sears assets will be sold. Some of their brands will be sold off. But my best guess is something will emerge from this, albeit in a much smaller form. But this Sears problem isn't really just an Amazon problem. We've seen the fall of some other companies like a Toys R Us where toy buying seems directly linked to people are just buying more stuff online. But Sears seems to be a different animal. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I don't think you can blame the demise of Sears entirely on Amazon. I think there was clearly a part of it that's attributed to Amazon, but there have been, as I just mentioned, plenty of retailers that have done reasonably well in spite of Amazon. Target has rebranded itself as the king of cheap chic they produce i thought you were going to say something else no 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 i'm a big target fan so no i would not disparage my beloved target which actually is based in my hometown of minneapolis target's great because you can buy flashy items good brand names at low prices and sometimes you just want to go in the store and kick the tires and target's very good for that target also has done a a decent job building an online presence sometimes i find goods that i wouldn't find on amazon at Target.com. Similarly, Walmart has proven itself a paradigm of supply chain efficiency. 
they get their goods in and they get them out quickly and they pass off the savings to the customers. You really can't beat the Walmart model in terms of efficiency. Sears, it was a different animal. They simply took their eye off of the retail ball. And it's anyone's guess as to why. Some argue it was perhaps because at the end of the day, Sears Holdings was a company built off of real estate and the bets were placed on where the real estate market would go. If real estate prices had increased substantially over time and at the right time, perhaps Sears Holdings would not be in bankruptcy right now. But few can deny the fact that very little was invested in the stores. If if you've been in a Sears in the last few years, you know what I'm talking about. Have, I, I guess we haven't really talked about this. Have you been inside a Sears recently? I don't even know where there is a Sears okay. anywhere near me. Okay, well, so this this represents a bit of the the age gap that characterizes our wonderful marriage. I grew up going to Sears. I used to look forward to it. My dad used to take me there. I used to look forward to the arrival of the Sears catalog in the mail. It was a destination. You'd, you'd receive your catalog, and then you'd go to the store and pick out what you wanted. That's not the Sears of today. The Sears of today is a tired, sad, pathetic institution. If you walk into a Sears, you're lucky if you find a few items on a clearance rack. It's probably something more akin to a Cold War Soviet rations store. That's pretty harsh. That's that's the reality. Well, one of the other things with Sears is that a, a big part of their business were appliances. And it seems like retailers like Best Buy have really cornered that appliance market. Well, it wasn't just Best Buy. It was Lowe's and Home Depot. Yes, and people go now to Home Depot, Lowe's for their tools, where you used to go to Sears, what, for Craftsman? That's right. See, I do know a little bit. A little bit. So it's sort of a combination of things here with Sears. That's right. And it really was the perfect storm, a perfect storm that was created by senior management. They have only themselves to blame. Of course, the casualties are the loyal customers, and most of all, they're, they're thousands upon thousands of employees. Well, that was, you got to my next question, which is now we know maybe there'll be a store or two still around in some form, depending on this bankruptcy settlement. But what happens to all these employees and what happens to the CEO? Well, the employees lose their jobs and most likely lose most or some or even most of their pensions. The CEO will go on to conquer other companies and and may even to some degree profit because he may purchase some of the assets from Sears in liquidation. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and see how it all, yes, yes, we will. It all plays out. So I'm going to pivot here a little bit to another iconic American brand, Roseanne, the TV show that is now being rebranded without Roseanne after news events that we're all probably aware of, um, to the Connors. Now, Ruben, is, can you put a value on a TV show? Because we all feel the value, or a lot of us who are fans grew up with it, um, and a lot of people hold the show in a very special place in their hearts. But is, is there a monetary value to TV shows? Well, there most definitely is, especially TV shows that end up in syndication. Historically, TV shows were filmed or going way back to our parents' and grandparents' generation. They were streamed live. I can't even use the word stream. They were just broadcast live. 
But fortunately, thanks to video technology, they were able to film, store, and re-release these TV shows in syndication. And that has become the source for real television IP value. Something like Roseanne is worth something insofar as it can continue in syndication. In essence, it becomes an annuity for the production company. And in spite of Roseanne's tweet tirade from some months ago that prompted the rather abrupt cancellation of her show, well, the network decided this is worth something. That ensemble cast is worth something. And potentially, they're able to carry on the brand through a new show called The Connors. If they can successfully do that, you're talking about a franchise that could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the million or multi-million dollar question is, can a franchise, like a franchise style like Roseanne, endure a branding change, The Connors, with sort of a lot of the, the heart of the quote-unquote franchise still there? Well, again, I think that's that's the most important question to ask here, and it's one that I can't answer because I don't know how audiences are going to respond to the Connors. I think there, there are a few outcomes, a few potential outcomes here. One, the Connors does reasonably well, and they continue to reference the old storyline. In essence, they reference Roseanne, even though I think she's going to be killed off on the show. That may prompt people to watch the reruns of Roseanne in syndication. That's worth a lot of money. Or another option, they take it in an entirely new direction. It becomes a standalone, similar to um, some of the great spin-off shows of the 1980s. You may recall a show called Frasier, which was a spin-off of Cheers. It didn't do. I don't think I was old enough to okay. watch that. Okay, all right. Here we go again with the age gap references. So you may, some of you, some of our listeners may recall that Frasier was one of the most successful comedies of all time, and it did so really on its own. It did not have to rely on references to Cheers. Well, there was there was a bit of uh, overlap here and there. Every now and then there was a guest appearance from a former cast member. But the reality was Frasier had a tone all on its own, something unique to Frasier, and it built a following and, and even attracted a new audience based on that tone. And it became a very successful franchise, one that continues in syndication today. So the Connors could go that way as well. Or, of course, another outcome could be doesn't go anywhere. And the network gave it a shot, did their best to monetize the IP. Maybe it doesn't work. So this is the equivalent of an investor making mailbox money, right? The production company is trying to invest in something that will then be licensed in syndication, where without doing extra work, they're now receiving money for investment that they previously had made. That's right. Nowadays, when TV shows are created, for the most part, they're thinking about 10 years down the road. They're not thinking so much about today because rarely will they recoup their investment in those first few years. The first run will rarely produce enough to cover their, their expenses. It's more about selling that show in syndication. Or in the case of some of the cable networks, like HBO, it's more about selling DVDs for years and years to come, as they do with shows like Game of Thrones. All right. Well, that's definitely going to be something we will watch the Connors to see what happens next in that American brand story. Well, Ruben, again, this has been another great episode of Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Vani. Joined with me by my co-host, Ruben Ivani. 
Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks, Emily.